Psalm 115, verses 1 through 3. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Our guide this morning will take us through a series of scripture passages. And we begin with that one in Psalm 119 because we want to establish that God deserves all glory, all credit, all praise for your salvation. And we're going to focus in on that theme of God's sovereign, reaching down, loving hand to save and rescue us as sinners. So if you have your worship guide and you can see that our big idea is a real simple little statement that I think has profound truth for us to chew on today. God saves through prayer. Now, that's not supposed to be an all-encompassing, all-inclusive statement about salvation, but it is a statement that I believe is helpful for us to see that one of the means that God uses to save sinners is through prayers. So, I wonder if you've ever thought, does God actually hear my prayers? Or you feel like you're talking into the air or to the wall or the floor. Or sometimes you might think or be tempted to think, I don't even know if my prayers actually do anything. Do they actually matter or change circumstances? I've regularly heard people say things along the lines that prayer it's really more for us. You know, it's more for making us humble. It's more for teaching us how to depend upon God. It's about creating a heart posture and a humility in our lives. And the more we pray, the more that it's going to make us new creatures. That's all obviously really true. Prayer does transform our hearts and make us humble and depend upon God. But that's not all that prayer does. It actually does. It does things in the world. The course of human history is being transformed day by day through prayer. And so we should never conclude that God is going to do whatever he's going to do and it doesn't matter if we pray. This, my friends, is not biblical. It is not helpful it is not going to spur you on to pray. One great motivator for us to pray during this coronavirus season should be our prayers matter. Our prayers do get used by God. He has ordained the world in such a way to cooperate or covenant with human beings. It's the first page of scripture. It's what we covered two weeks ago when we talked about what it means to be a human that we're made in covenant relationship with God to rule over the earth. God rules through humans in Genesis 1. God decided to create the world and use us. And he always uses humans. Salvation itself is salvation through a human, Jesus Christ. So from beginning to end, we will see 
that the Bible is filled with God not just dropping out of nowhere and not using human beings. He speaks through human beings. His word was crafted and written by human beings. And so in this week's worship guide, we want to just reflect on this simple but deeply profound statement. God saves. That'll be the first thing we want to consider. God is the one who saves. But we also want to consider he saves through humans, through the means of human beings. And one of those means is prayer. So God saves through prayer. We want to praise God and thank him for his sovereign power to save us. And we want to have our prayer lives spurred on when we are undergirded by the reality that our prayers really do matter. So instead of just one scripture passage, and because again, the format of these home worship guides and Zoom calls is just different than what we normally do, I figured today might be helpful to just see a whole bunch of teaching from scripture and a good survey from Old and New Testament on this first point. God saves. So follow along with me if you have your handouts with you. I'd encourage you to look them up later if you don't have them with you right this minute. In the actual home worship guide exercise, I encourage people to circle the subject of the sentence and then underline the verb of the sentence. Not so we could just, you know, sharpen up our grammar, but so you can see how these verses are communicating truth. So starting first with Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul that you may live. In the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, God tells Moses that he will be the agent who changes, transforms, uses the verb circumcise here to cut off your heart so that you will love God and that you will live. These are all foreshadowing language of what will come when Jesus brings the gift of the Holy Spirit to change our hearts and bring salvation. That's in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. You don't circumcise your heart. God is the subject. He is the agent. Then the action is the circumcision or the changing, the transforming of people's hearts that bring them to love God with all of their soul and live. This is seen in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. God says through Ezekiel, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So instead of hard, sinful, rock-like hearts that don't have any feelings or love or affection for God, God removes that stone and puts in a soft, tender, warm heart toward God. God does that. He gives it. He puts in his spirit. And this is what we mean when we say someone is born again, regenerated, saved. Jeremiah 31, 33. Again, a prophetic word pointing forward to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. God says, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I 
will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jump forward to the New Testament and see John chapter 1. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So think to yourself for a minute. Do you believe in God? Have you received Jesus Christ into your life? Have you become a children, a child of God? Well, this happened because of God. You were not born because, uh, born again, that is, through blood, as in your family origins, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but because of God. Or as Acts 16, 14 says, look at the language as Lydia, this wealthy woman in Philippi, who is a merchant and sells different cloths and whatever else she does with her business. She encounters the Apostle Paul, this missionary who's this early Christian, and it says in Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened her heart, Lydia's heart, to pay attention to what was being preached and said by Paul. What a great little statement there. Someone is preaching the Bible, and God is opening hearts. The Lord opened Lydia's heart. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it is because God used the means of the preaching of the gospel, the reading of the word, some means of communicating his message of salvation, and then through his spirit, he opened your heart. Salvation is God's doing, Romans 8, 3 through 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the sinful flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. I love that passage in many different ways, but for this purpose, I just want to point out God did what you and I in our sinful flesh could not do. Romans 8 verse 3. 2 Corinthians 4 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, if you read that passage, actually two verses prior, it will say that unbelievers, people who are not Christians, they have been blinded to the truth. They can't see the glories of Jesus Christ. So the difference between everyone who is in the world right now is either they are glorying in the face of Jesus Christ or they are not. And why is that? 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says that you are blind or you have had light shine out of darkness into your heart because the God who said light shine out of darkness, that's a quote from Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, let there be light, and there was light in the very first page of Scripture. And that same God who creates light out of nothing, out of darkness, that God can create light out of the darkness of your heart. You might think, someone is not worth saving or they're too far gone or they have just complete utter darkness in their soul and they're so evil and wicked and whatever. God is the God who puts light into the darkest of dark places, even the darkest of dark hearts. 
That is the consistent testimony of Scripture. God saves. God brings light into darkness. God makes you born again. Or as Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You have been saved because of God, because of his grace, not because you were dead, lying dead in your sin and thinking, oh, I'm going to get up. Dead people don't get up on their own. The only way to get up as a dead person is like Lazarus was in the tomb. Jesus's good friend Lazarus was dead for four days. And the reason he got up from the dead was because the word of God spoke and Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And in the same way, when God's word thunderously speaks into our hearts and our lives, it resurrects, it brings to life something that was dead. And this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be saved. Or to use one more example, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 25 and 26. God is telling through Paul that Timothy should be gentle to his opponents. That's the context of this passage that I'm going to read to you. 2 Timothy 2, 25 to 26. He says, be gentle with some of your opponents. He says, because if you are gentle with them, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Here's the the little observation you need to look at this passage. Who's the subject? God. What is he doing? He is granting. It's the word used for like giving a gift, right? When you grant something, there's no expectation or obligation for something in return. It's not a loan. God loaned them repentance. And then you got to pay it back with good works. No, God granted a gift. Namely, what was the gift? Repentance. Hopefully, many of you are familiar with that word repentance. To turn away from your former way of life, to embrace a new way of life that follows Jesus to turn from your sin, your selfishness, your self-absorption, and embrace a God-centered, others-centered way of life. That's repentance. To say, my foundation in life was on the wrong thing. My gods were the wrong gods. I need to turn away from the former way and embrace a new way. That is central to becoming a Christian. Hopefully that is not news, but if it is news, well, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is Christianity 101. But as we take a step further or deeper into this reality, let us look and see that the repentance that you and I have in our life, it is because of the gift of God's granting us repentance. Or as Philippians 1.29 says, that you will be granted faith. So that's why in your notes there. See also Philippians 1.29. God granted that some of you would not only suffer for him, but also believe. Believing and repenting is not something that you just muster up on your own. It's something that God gives you as a gift. And he does that because of the preaching of the word and prayer. So before we move on to prayer, let's just first acknowledge the fact that God is the one who saves That's our big idea. God saves. 
in J.I. Packer's helpful little book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he starts out in the very first chapter saying, look, I don't even need to do what Phil just did. He doesn't actually say those words. He, he, he starts out his book saying that God's sovereign, and you already know that. Some of you may not think he's sovereign, but you actually do think he's sovereign. And it's a rather abrupt way to start a book, right? To say, I don't even need to waste my time arguing for the sovereignty of God. Why? Here's what he says. I'm not going to spend time proving to you the particular truth that God is sovereign in your salvation. You already believe that. One fact that shows this is that God is the one who you give thanks for, for your conversion. Now, why would you give thanks to God for your conversion? Because you know that in your heart that God was entirely responsible for it. You didn't save yourself. He saved you. Your thanksgiving is itself an acknowledgement that your conversion was not your own work, but it was his work. You do not put it down to chance or accident that you came under some Christian influence when you did. You did not put it down to chance or accident that you attended a Christian church or that you heard a Christian gospel, that you had Christian friends and perhaps a Christian home, that the Bible fell into your hands and that you saw your need of Christ and came to trust in him as your savior. And you do not attribute your repenting and believing to your own wisdom or prudence or sound judgment or good sense. These things are gifts from God as we have just seen in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and Philippians chapter 1. Therefore, it is right for us to thank God for saving us. Have you had that moment in your life? Have you stopped and thanked God for saving you? I can remember a vivid moment when I was a middle schooler and I was at a Christian youth conference. And I remember being overwhelmed, like complete emotional tears, weeping, kind of overwhelmed kind of feeling. And it was because I realized this truth. God sovereignly put me into a Christian family and I could have born in, been born into any other family. And in, in God's providence, I became a Christian in part through the people that were in my own family, my mom and dad, my brothers and my sisters. And so I'm here today following Jesus because of God's sovereignty. It wasn't by chance that I was born into that family. And so it is. God's sovereignty is in part as to why you believe and repent and why you're hearing this teaching right now and why you're going to church when you go to church. None of those things are chance. And so it would be good for us to give thanks to God for these things. And so we're going to pause now. And we're going to encourage all of you to get into a posture of prayer and for us to give thanks for our salvation. So we have established first that God saves. Hopefully, as J.I. Packer has just been brought to our attention, we all kind of instinctively believe that, but hopefully that survey of scriptures helps us see, yeah, that is what the Bible teaches. God sovereignly saves, makes dead people alive, makes blind eyes able to see, shines light where there is no light, and brings life where there is no life, etc. So now let's move and transition to the second half of what we have been looking at. God saves through means, through 
humans. And specifically, he saves through prayer. That's one way that God brings about his plan of salvation. In fact, it's one way that he ordains the whole universe is that through our prayers, many things happen in the world and it's the basis for, say for example, this is a good litmus test of this idea. It seems to me like it'd be really easy to say, well, God's going to get his glory and praise whether we pray or whether we don't pray for God to be honored. That would be an easy thing to maybe start being tempted to think or conclude that what do we need to ask for God to get honor and praise for? He's, he's going to get that anyway, whether we ask for it or not. But then the very first thing Jesus teaches us to pray is, Our Father, who is in heaven, honor your name hallowed your name, glorify your name. Like if there was one thing you thought that, yeah, God's got that under control, like he's going to get his glory and praise. But isn't it interesting that the first thing that he wants us to learn to pray is that God would be honored and glorified and praised. Perhaps I would suggest that the reason is because God ordains that through our prayers, he gets honor and glory. And so as we look through our worship guide, we will see that God brings salvation through preaching and praying and through our love and through the church. And so our prayers do matter. And if God wants to save someone, then he will ordain the means of praying. In other words, if we're firm in our belief that God's sovereign and he's going to do something, then why wouldn't we think that God sovereignly would stir up you and me to pray? And that be part of all the things that he's doing to bring about salvation. Did you pray just because you had that wonderful desire in your heart by yourself from your own sinful flesh? Or was that the spirit of God prompting you, encouraging you to pray? Did you pray because God commanded you to pray and you say, well, I'm going to obey God's commands. And even though I don't feel like it, I'm going to pray anyway today. I mean, whatever it might be, it is God's will and his word that is leading and guiding us through his spirit to pray. So let's look at a few passages of scripture. Matthew chapter 7, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What's the flip side to what Jesus is saying there? If you don't ask and you don't seek, then you won't find and you will not be given. Uh, later on in James chapter 4, verse 2, if you want to drop your eyes down to that verse on your handout, you do not have because you do not ask. That just makes the point crystal clear of Jesus's logic in Matthew 7. Sometimes people have not become Christians, at least yet, because you haven't even prayed for it. You haven't even asked for it. There are things in our lives that are not happening because we're not even asking God for them. Now, there's another side to that too, where you've been asking and asking and then it's not happening. And this is where prayer is certainly a mystery because it's not like some sort of lever that we kind of pull down the lever and say, see, I prayed, so now I get whatever the genie in the bottle is gonna give me because that's how this works. 
No, we pray in accordance with God's will. We pray the way Jesus taught us, not our will, but your will be done. And we say, God, you answer this prayer as what will be best for us. That's one of my prayers I've been praying the last two weeks. God, in all the things I've been praying, would you do what would be best? What's best for me and for all those I've been praying for? Matthew chapter 9, next passage of scripture. Jesus says to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Prayer is necessary for the sake of sending people to the lost. Why would Jesus ask us to pray to send out laborers if it wasn't prayer being part of how God sends people to the lost world, the lost nations? And so... Prayer is a part of the sending process. It is a part of the changing people's heart process. Romans 10.1, listen to the way Paul prays. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. It is a completely biblical and appropriate thing for you to pray, God, save them. Do it, God. Not God, would you put them in a circumstance surrounding them so that way they could be saved and make a decision to be saved. Just say it, God, save them. You can do that. You can change their heart, remove the stone, put in a heart of flesh. Ephesians 6, 19, Paul says, pray also for me that the words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Prayer is part of how we not just get It's part of the process of not just being sent to share the gospel, but to then even be given the boldness when sharing the gospel. So notice the way how all-encompassing prayer is in the New Testament. The prayer, God save, God send, God give us boldness when we preach. Colossians 4.3, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the words to declare the mystery of Christ. Pray that God would open a door to us for the word. Similarly, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. I like this one in particular. It says, look, some people don't believe. Some people are not Christians. So brothers, pray that the word of the Lord would speed ahead. It would be honored. It would produce good fruit like it happened to you, Thessalonian church. So that would sound like this. Embassy church, the word of God, it multiplied. It bared fruit in your heart and in your life. You didn't have faith, but now you do. So now let's pray that the word of God would speed ahead and be honored amongst those who are needing deliverance from evil. And lastly, James 5, 16 and 17. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. And then heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. What a great passage for us to conclude this series of passages with, right? Does this passage not make clearer more than any other passage of Scripture that your prayers are powerful, that your prayers do work, 
Your prayers change the events of human history. Your prayers could affect the weather. Your prayers can affect the hearts and lives of people. God works through prayers. And hopefully you can see that we aren't commanded to pray just simply so that we become humble, but because in fact God has chosen to ordain all events in human history through means, through some actions or means. And so God works through the prayers of his people. And that's how salvation comes. God saves through prayer. Let's read Packer again one more time. And if you have your handout, I have a quote here at the very end of J.I. Packer's little book. If you've never read it, Evangelism in the Sovereignty of God. It's a great short, little, thin book with four chapters on the question. Basically, if God's going to save people, that's part one, right? God saves. Well, then what do we need to do? And basically, it's unpacking everything that we've been talking about. And at the very end, he talks about prayer again. And he says, prayer is a confessing of impotence and need, an acknowledging of helplessness and dependence, and an invoking of the mighty power of God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In evangelism, we are impotent. And that's something that, just as a quick pause, J.I. Packer goes on to unpack in this book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Like when we do evangelism, we don't save people. We just share the gospel and then God saves people. We cannot demand or expect results, again, as this kind of like lever of, well, if we get the right music or we get the right sermon or the right preacher or the right environment or context, then surely somebody's going to get saved. That's called manipulation. And it is more cult-like. And I don't want to be a cult. I hope you don't either. So back to the quote. Um, J.I. Packer says, In evangelism, we are impotent. We can't save. We depend wholly upon God to make our witness effective. Only because he is able to give men new hearts can we hope that through our preaching of the gospel, sinners will be born again. These facts ought to drive us to prayer. It is God's intention that they should drive us to prayer. God means us in this, as in other things, to recognize and confess our impotence and to tell him that we rely on him alone and to plead with him to glorify his name. It is his way regularly to withhold his blessings until his people start to pray. How about that last line? It is his way regularly to withhold his blessings until his people start to pray. It shows you that the scriptures teach God's working through humans. And I don't want to necessarily overstate it, and maybe I have in some respects, that God is tied to us as if he can't do things unless we pray or whatever. I'm saying that God is going to change our hearts and lead us to pray and then work through our praying because he is going to work through human beings regularly. So that's the point. It's not that God's waiting around for us. It's that God is going to move through praying people. And so when he is going to move, you'll first see it by people on bended knees and bowed heads and arms raised in whatever posture praying to God. So we're going to spend some time now. Let's pause and let's pray. Let's pray for people to be saved 
because this is in fact what we've been called to do in the scriptures. Sometimes we have not received because we have not asked. Let's not be those kind of people. Let's ask. Let's plead. Let's beg again and again, like the woman in Luke chapter 18 that keeps coming to the judge and persists again. And because of that persistence, God grants salvation. Let's do that now. So we have considered throughout our time this morning that God saves through prayer. And of course, to reiterate, God saves through Jesus. But we need to also recognize that when God saves through Jesus, in part, another way or another angle to think about that is that God saves through Jesus's prayers. And I think it's really important for us as we consider this theme and as we close out our time together is to close with thinking about Jesus, thinking about him in the Garden of Gethsemane, that garden right before he was arrested, before he was taken to trial, unjustly tried, sentenced to death, and then hung on a cross, he prayed. And he prayed, my father, may your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. The very thing he teaches us to pray, he prayed. He prayed, God, take this cup from me. And he experienced what you and I experience a lot of. There is desires or there are wants in our in our minds of how we think something might go. And we then submit them up to God and say, God, but at the end of the day, I want your will to be done. And Jesus prayed that way. And his prayer was answered in the way of not giving him the cup being taken away, but by pouring out the cup of God's wrath on Jesus as he hung on a cross. And then even as he hung on the cross, consider Jesus praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. If you're a Christian today, it's because you have received the forgiveness of Jesus from your sins. Jesus's forgiveness has been offered and achieved and accomplished because of prayer, because of Jesus's prayers, because of the prayers of a human being hanging on a cross. He prayed, Father, forgive them. And God answered that prayer with an almighty magnificent yes i will forgive them and he forgives through jesus's atoning death on the cross which was sufficient as the means for our forgiveness and salvation and so let us look to jesus as we want to make effort of doing every day do so in this theme god saves through jesus's prayers or to add one more final passage that we were singing about just a minute ago in our song before the throne of god above i have a great high priest whose name is love who ever lives and pleads for me salvation and preservation of our salvation our faith is because of the prayers of one another and the prayers of Jesus himself. Read through the book of Hebrews in chapter 7, you'll notice that 
it says that Jesus himself is now in the heavenly places as a human being interceding on our behalf and pouring out prayers day and night, always praying for us. So God is working. God the Father is working through the Son and his prayers. So I think hopefully we can see throughout the whole Bible that God is the sovereign Lord who saves and he does it through prayer. So let's close with this benediction, this word, this good word from Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He who is able to do far more than what you even ask or imagine. Let us give him glory and praise in the name of Jesus. I hope you all have a great week and that you will go on rejoicing in the glorious truth that God saves through our prayers.